Last week we tried to get all the way through the end of chapter 21 and I failed miserably. Um, <clears throat> we ended around verse 27 or so, so I decided to pick up this week at uh, where we left off, kind of in the middle of the drama. Uh, one of these, come back next week for the rest of the, uh, the show. Everybody have one here? All right, it worked out, good. We have a sharing group. For those of you who um, were not here, we'll kind of give you the scenario. We have Paul finishing his third missionary journey and has arrived at Jerusalem. He has been warned multiple times that if he comes, it's not going to go well. Uh, well, that's exactly what happened. Thing is, Paul is being accused of nefarious things that are anti-Jewish, and there's a a faction within the uh, within the the city that basically doesn't want him to be speaking anymore. They are saying that he has. Um, He's preaching against circumcision for Jews. He's preaching against the law of Moses. And he's also desecrating the temple. So he's just, you know, the trifecta of bad things. So the elders and the leaders of the Jerusalem church came to Paul and said, how about you do this? How about you come alongside four men who are performing their Nazarene vow, Nazarite vow, you either join them or you come alongside them and for a week you purify yourself with them and at the very end you pay for their uh, sacrifices that they must make in the temple. That way you can show people that you are a part of the law of Moses and that you are um, <clears throat> you're not preaching against it. So we have in verse 26, Paul took the men the next day and he purified himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification, purification would be fulfilled and, offer, and, uh, and the offering presented for each one of them. Verse 27, which is where we pick up today. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, now we talked about this briefly last week of who were these Jews from Asia and where in Asia, we are uh, theorizing, we are, um, we are not declaring, but our theory is that these men were from Ephesus and they recognized Paul in the temple. Now remember, Paul had been in Ephesus for three years. He would have been well known. He would have been recognized. Um, <clears throat> and if you remember the last time he was in Ephesus, there was a tiny little riot nothing to worry about just something that he never went back and they see him and they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Paul crying men of Israel help this is the man who's teaching against teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place moreover he brought Greeks into the temple <gasps> Greeks in the temple and has defiled this holy place Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now it's either Trophimus or Trophimus, however you want to pronounce the syllable. Um, <clears throat> Trophimus was from Ephesus. We have him mentioned in Acts specifically and has traveled with Paul this entire way. He is a Greek. He is not a Jew. So this is a big deal if a Greek has entered the temple. And this is where you turn to the last page of your handout, which we were looking at a little bit last week, but we're going to slow it down a little bit more here. I have two renditions. I, want, I have an overhead chart of the temple itself and then a artistic drawing which I'm not quite sure how accurate that drawing is but it it's sufficient for our purposes 
If you'll notice, on the left-hand side of the top map, you see the phrase, Court of the Israelites. And notice where it's pointing. It's pointing in that tiny little, you know, horseshoe-shaped section right outside the major part of the temple where the sacrifices were uh, performed. This was as far as a Jew could get unless they were a priest. The priestly class could actually enter the temple itself, present things at the altar, and then inside that is the Holy of Holies where only the high priest would go once a year. So for a Greek to enter the court of the Israelites is a really bad thing. At the bottom, inside the kind of the whitish area of that chart is the court of the Gentiles. That would be as far as Trophimus could go. He could not get past that. Now he could. Very easy, just walk through the gate. I mean, they're open. It's not like they had bars on them and you know little turnstiles where you swipe your magnetic card and you know, beep and it lets you through. That you know, there was no toll taker. In fact, the wall between them is four and a half feet high. So if you're six foot, you can look over it. You can actually see what's going on. For that matter, you can throw things over the wall. I mean, it's not like it's this massive barrier. It's just a signal. This is as far as you can go if you're a Gentile. There were warning signs posted. Now, this is assuming people are literate. But there are warning signs posted at the gates. And we have found two of them in the rubble. Archaeologists have uncovered two of these signs and they're written in Greek and Latin. And it reads, No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. I would pay attention to a sign like that. I would hope I would have a friend, if I couldn't read, who would read it for me. So I wouldn't accidentally stumble in and go, oops, sorry, you're gone. The Jews were allowed to put someone to death, even under the Roman law. They were allowed to do this. And they were serious about it. No pun intended, they were dead serious about it. You will not defile the temple area. So to say that Trophimus has been ushered into the court of the Israelites by Paul, which is interesting, Paul wouldn't be in trouble. Trophimus would have been in trouble. Trophimus wouldn't have been the one who died. Paul would have just been the idiot to bring him in, you know. He's my plus one. Here we go. Let's go get some temple food. And, you know, isn't there a great food court in there? No, there's no food court. In fact, look for the word food court on the chart. You won't find it. This isn't a, this isn't a, play, this isn't a PlayStation. This isn't something where you mess around. This is very serious stuff. So the accusation is obviously made up. They saw Paul walking around town with Trophimus, and they make this accusation saying, well, you know, obviously if he's walking around with this Greek, he obviously brought him to the temple. Verse 30. And all the city was stirred up, the same stirred up that we saw just in the previous verses. That's the word used to describe the riot in Ephesus in chapter 19. It is chaos. It's also the same Greek word used to describe the Tower of Babel confusion in the Old Testament Greek, in the Septuagint. They stirred up. Also remember, it's Pentecost. This is a major feast time of the city. I heard all sorts of estimates 
as many as two million people have gathered. Now, not all of them are in the temple area that couldn't fit that many. But just take a look at that map again. Imagine it being wall-to-wall people. We're talking thousands of people milling around in this area. And now they're stirring them up. And it says, the people ran together. Verse 30, they seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, meaning out of the court of the Israelites. And once the gates, and at once the gates were shut. So there were gates, they just were always open. They shut the gates behind Paul to ensure that there would be no desecration of the temple area. Now, if a Gentile or a Greek had entered the court of the Israelites, he would have not been executed in the temple area because that would desecrate that area. There would be a dead body, there would be blood, all of the things that were considered uh, profane. So they would drag someone out. They could kill them in the court of the Gentiles. It was already desecrated because there's Gentiles walking around. And so they pull him out, slam the doors behind him, and then they were seeking to kill him. We don't have a time frame here, but I imagine this happened really fast. You know, there was a few rabble-rousers. They start making noise. The next thing you know, there's four of them, then eight of them, then 16, then 32, then 64, then 128. And they're all now angry. And they're coming at Paul. They're seeking to kill him. And basically, it doesn't say it right here, but we know it from what... We can see at the end of verse 32. They start beating him to death. Fists. Feet. I don't know about you, but doesn't this hatred seem over the top? I mean, this isn't a minor disagreement. This isn't, you know, two people disagreeing over what to put on your salad. I mean, this is death. They are wanting to put Paul to death for supposedly defiling the law of God. You also notice Paul doesn't, we don't have any record of Paul saying anything. He's just being beaten. I had one commentator said, so why didn't the, uh, the church leaders step in? Where was James? Where were the elders? Well, if they were there, they probably got pushed to the back of that crowd really quick. And there's, they couldn't get to him quick enough before the crowd is on him. And now it's relatively dangerous, as you can imagine. And, you know, we, we study studied Paul for a while now. How many times has he been beaten? No? Ah, it's Tuesday. (laughs) This this is on my calendar. I mean, the guy is forever being beaten and attempted to squash his voice. And it's happening again. Verse 31. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now we have to stop there because we we can in our our study and figure out what is a tribune and what is a cohort. The tribune is a commander or literally chiliarch. C-H-I-L-I-A-R-C-H. Chiliarch or Kiliarch, however you want to pronounce it. This is a Greek, sorry, a Roman commander who commanded a thousand troops. 
What's the name of someone who commanded a hundred? Centurion. Centurion. So this is the next level above. So this is a man who would be in charge of a thousand troops. That means there's a thousand troops there. Otherwise he wouldn't be there. So you have to realize, wait, they've got a thousand Roman troops? Well, where are they housing them? Well, you look at your map. That little, the bottom, we had a little circle at the top. Fortress Antonia is in the top corner of the temple area, built right on the outside of the wall. This has been there for many years. It was built by Herod and was named for Mark Antony. That's where you have Fortress Antonia. It could house a lot of people because this fortress, let's see here, is 60 feet high. That's five stories. Imagine a five-story large building with uh, four towers. You can see the rendition of four towers. Three of them are 75 feet high and the fourth one is 100 feet high. And the tallest one is on the inner wall of the courtyard. And you can see that somewhat rendered in the drawing. Why would they have that tower there? Because every stinking time there was trouble, it always was a flashpoint in the temple. And so they put the Romans on a sentry. They're up there watching what's going on. They're seeing all the people milling around, making sure there's no trouble. And if you think back to the time of Jesus, when the soldiers came to collect Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, those soldiers had come from Fortress Antonia. That's where they're housed. A five-story building would house a thousand people easily. And depending on how you, you, know, you, you look into your history, <clears throat> some would say that it's 750 uh, infantry uh, and 250 cavalry. Um, that's possible. It could be they had a stable somewhere else, but um, I'm not sure how to apply that to this particular situation. Josephus said that the cohort was always in Antonia because, quote, at the festivals they extended along the colonnades fully armed and watched for any sign of discontent. So if, again, you look at the artistic rendering, you can imagine the soldiers being placed not just on the tower, but being placed around the entire courtyard watching to make sure that there's no foment. Because what was the one thing the emperor wanted throughout Rome? Peace. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And any time there was a revolt or any sort of uprising, bam! They went in as quickly as possible and squashed it as fast as they could, knowing full well if they let it ferment and let it rise up. You know, the next thing you know, you have a breakaway colony, you have a breakaway area, and now you got to send in the larger troops. Well, fast forward in history about nine years. In 66 AD, there was an uprising in Jerusalem. And it rose up and up and up and up. And so the emperor sent uh, General Titus. And Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Literally knocked the temple down. We don't have the temple anymore because of Titus in 70 AD. It's never been rebuilt. What you see there now is the Dome of the Rock. When the Muslims came in, they built their temple on top of the space where the Jewish temple used to be. If you, any of you been to the Holy Land and visit the Wailing Wall? So you, I, you know, so we've got two women, so you were on the women's side of the Wailing Wall. 
On the men's side, it's a little different. I don't know, were you able to see the foundation stones? So if you go up, they have actually built a trench and you can look down and see the stones from Herod's temple. But they're basically one or two and that's it. So when the Romans destroyed the temple, they destroyed the temple. And they said, I think they said they killed 100,000 Jews. So they're serious when they want to squash revolts. So this little one, this little dust up, so to speak, they move in right here. He at once, this tribune, by the way, name, by the way his name is Claudius Lysias. He's named in Acts 23, 26. So we know who he is. This tribune at once took soldiers and centurions, plural. Centurions, plural. Not a centurion. So what does that suggest? There's at least 200 soldiers. So I love drawing the mental picture. So let's put it on screen. Let's put a big film up here. And you hear the call go out quickly, rattles around the, the area. The commander says, go down and stop this riot. And the soldiers start coming down, 200 of them, fully armored in their riot gear with the plastic face masks <laughs> and their billy clubs. But you can get the picture. They're serious. They're not just kind of strolling down. Hey, could you kind of stop messing around? No, they are moving with force to stop an argument in the temple square. Took soldiers and they ran down to them. Now that stomp, stomp, stomp was probably double time. So it was stomp, 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 stomp. All moving in one direction to squash this mess. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So now you have this guy laying on the ground, bruised, bloodied, disheveled, clothes are torn, and they don't know what's going on. All they know is that there's been an argument. Somebody used someone's incorrect pronoun. Sorry, I just made that a modern thing, didn't I? So anyway, just this total chaos. When the tribute came up and arrested Paul, ordered him to be bound with two chains. Most likely one chain for each arm with two soldiers on each side. Didn't bind him together, it bound him like this so he could walk. This fulfills the prophecy of Agabus. In chapter 21, verses 10 to 11, when the prophet Agabus came to Paul and, and bound him with his belt, hands and feet, and said, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound. You will be arrested. And it happened, just as he said it would. The tribune inquired, who Paul was and what he had done. Who are you? Why are you being attacked? What's going on? And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Well, that sounds familiar. In Acts 19.32, during the riot in Ephesus, it reads, Now some cried out one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. They weren't even sure where they were at the riot. It's just, let's go watch, you know, it's like we watch traffic accidents, we slow down. Like, let's go see what's going on, and to track this mess, he didn't know what's going on. And because he could not learn the facts, because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought to the barracks, which is the Fortress Antonia. And when they came to the steps, Paul was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So now they stopped beating him, but they're still trying to get at him. 
The violence of the crowd is so much that most likely the soldiers simply grabbed him by the elbow and lifted him up in between these two soldiers that just basically carried him. Because if we believe the uh, the records that say of the stature statue of ah, stature of Paul, he was not a big man. He was a small man. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he probably was, you know, kind of dazed and not being able to move. They pick him up. One uh, commentator said they did a, um, you know, held him up over their heads. I don't think that would have happened because people would have been reaching over the top. And, but if you pull him up and then put three or four soldiers around with shields, they really can't get at him, but they're going to try. And they still have a large crowd, and they're trying to press their way through the crowd to get Paul out of the room. He was actually physically carried by the soldiers, for the mob followed crying out, away with him, which is the same thing they shouted to Pilate in Luke 23 saying away with Jesus and release for us Barabbas. So as Paul was about to be brought, this is verse 37, to the barracks, Paul turned to the tribune and said, may I say something to you? <laughs> He's so polite. <laughs> and the tribune says, do you know Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian? <laughs> then the, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now, you have to stop and go, what in the world is going on here? We have historical corroboration of this story, and we find it in Josephus. The exploits of the Egyptian revolutionary the Roman Chiliarch refers to is described in this way. A greater blow than this was inflicted on the Jews by the Egyptian false prophet. Arriving in the country, this man, a fraud, who posed as a seer, collected about 30,000 dupes. I wonder what actual word Josephus used that was translated dupes. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> now, Josephus says 30,000, the Bible says four. Josephus is known to exaggerate his numbers. And so this is not an uncommon thing for him to swell things. Because remember, Josephus was a work-for-hire paid journalist to write the history of the Jews for the Romans. He was paid by the Romans to write what we have. Anyway. This seer led them around from the desert to the Mount of Olives. Now, where was the Mount of Olives in relation to Jerusalem? East. Just east. east. You have Jerusalem, a valley, Mount of Olives. Literally across, you can stare, stand on the Mount of Olives and look into Jerusalem, right over the walls. Garden of Gethsemane is in between. And from there was ready to force an entry into Jerusalem, overwhelm the Roman garrison, and seize supreme power with his fellow raiders as bodyguard. But Felix, the governor of the area, Felix anticipated his attempt and met him with Roman heavy infantry. The whole population rallied to the defense so that when the clash occurred, the Egyptian fled with a handful of men and most of his followers were killed or captured and the rest of the mob scattered and stole away to their respective homes. My guess, this Egyptian had a wanted poster everywhere in every post office in Palestine. But you imagine there was a description of him probably in the Fortress Antonia. Keep on a lookout for this guy in the temple or in the uh, court of the Gentiles. Watch out for this guy. He was ready to overthrow it. If he had 4,000 followers, he could overwhelm the Roman garrison of 1,000. It was a dangerous time. 
Also note, this verse says, who led the 4,000 men of the assassins, and in the ESV it capitalizes assassins. That is literally the Greek word sicarius. You've heard that word maybe? In Mexico, the sicario are the cartel assassins. That's the word. It's borrowed from the Latin word sicca, S-I-C-A, meaning dagger. And the sicari were dagger men. Here is a little bit more from Josephus about the dagger men. A type of bandit sprang up in Jerusalem known as the sicari. These men committed numerous murders in broad daylight in the middle of the city. Their favorite trick was to mingle with festival crowds, Pentecost, concealing under their garments small daggers with which they stabbed their opponents. And when the victim fell, the assassin melted into the indignant crowd and through their plausibility entirely defied detection. The first to have his throat cut by them was Jonathan the high priest. And after him, many were murdered every day. More terrible than the crimes themselves was the fear they aroused, every man hourly expecting death, just like war. So, that little verse, those little phrase, you know, aren't you the Egyptian who stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men with the assassins out into the wilderness? This is, he thinks he got the guy and it's Paul but Paul talked to him in Greek and just threw it it's like wait you're cultured you, you, you speak the lingua franca of, of the uh, elite and Paul replied I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Well, now this poor Roman guy is confused. It's like, okay, we just saved your life, buddy. Um, you want to talk to them? All right. And when he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, now we don't know exactly where the steps are, Obviously, they've got to be in the area of the barracks, up in that area, so that people could see see Paul. And there was a great... Oh, he's standing on the steps, and he motioned with his hand. I love the detail. I mean, you can imagine Paul going... He can't out-shout the crowd. He can't say quiet. He can't, you know, do the whistle. He's just saying... You see me? I want to say something. And it says a great hush came upon him. Fascinating. And he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Now, another little interesting little tidbit underneath your English translation. The phrase Hebrew language does not mean he spoke in Hebrew. Although he could have. The literal meaning, the literal Greek word is Hebraic dialectos, Hebrew dialect. But we have translated, for whatever reason, it's translated into Hebrew language in the English. It means Hebrew dialect, suggesting he spoke in Aramaic, the language of the people. So not only just talk to the, the Roman in Greek, he then turns to the people, and now he's talking in Aramaic. I have to wonder, does the Roman understand what he's saying? You know, maybe it sounds like a variation of Greek. It, you know, some, he gets some echoes, and depending on how long he's been established there, he may have picked up some words. But I doubt if he would get this whole testimony. And we come to the next section. Paul begins speaking, and he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. The last time someone addressed a crowd 
with the phrase brothers and fathers is Stephen in Acts chapter 7 just before he's stoned. He's drawn into the group, he stands up to preach to them, and he starts with brothers and fathers, just like Paul does here. Isn't that interesting? And he says, hear the defense, the apologia. Not the apology, not the, oh, I'm so sorry I made you guys upset. It's a the word defense, like apologetics. He says, I am now going to make my defense before you. And when they heard he was dress, addressing them in Aramaic, I'm going to just editorialize there, they became even more quiet. Now remember, he's been accused of three major things. One, desecrating the temple. Two, um, preaching against the law of Moses. You don't need to follow the laws of the Jewish people. And preaching against circumcision of the Jews. Which is not true. I mean, Acts chapter 16, Paul circumcised Timothy. Now, you don't do that if you don't believe in it. And Timothy certainly wouldn't accept it unless he was convinced um, that no, you know, no minor surgery here. <clears throat> From verse 3 through all the way to 21 is Paul's testimony. Now, I'm not going to go through it in detail. We know this testimony. We know this testimony really well. But I've made an observation, and I want to ask a question, because this really struck me. Paul's testimony, this same testimony of his conversion on the road to Damascus and all the details related to it, some of the testimonies give a little bit more detail than others. There's just little slight differences, but that would happen any time the testimony is given. We have it five times in the New Testament. Five times. And a sixth time, it's alluded to without as much detail. Those five times are Acts chapter 9, when it actually happened. Acts chapter 22, which we're looking at right now. Acts chapter 26, when he's at the trial with Felix the governor. Philippians 3. 1 Timothy 1. And an abridged version of it in Galatians chapter 1. Can you name another testimony that is given more often in the New Testament, or the entire Bible, than this one? Lisa and I were talking about this last night. She brought up the story of the foundation of Israel with Abraham. That story is mentioned many times, but never from Abraham's lips. You have it being retold because it was part of the story of the people of Israel and was rendered multiple times. Even Stephen had it in his sermon. But there's no other testimony like this repeated so many times in the New Testament. So here's my question. Why? What is God trying to tell us? If he's going to repeat something like this, this many times, in his word, for our benefit. Any ideas? Don't think I have an answer. Yeah? Uh, this is such an important thing to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. This, the call of Paul he said he has to suffer and, and, and proclaim to the Gentiles. Yes. So it's, it's pivotal. It's, it's absolutely pivotal. Because not only, like you just mentioned, not only did it establish his break with Judaism, but also his call to the Gentiles. So he had to present it regularly. Yeah. 
Yeah, he was also an unusual fossil because he was not one of the original 12. He even talks about like one being abnormally born. I, don't, I forget how the phrase was, but I mean, he was a, an unusual replacement for the, the, mm -hmm. for the Judas. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, he was, it was an unusual call, not like the other 11. And knowing Paul's humility, which comes out all over the place in Scripture, doesn't it seem kind of odd that he keeps talking about his story? Well, he needs to. It's establishing his, depends on how you want to pronounce it, his bona fides or bona fides, depending on how cultured you are. Or do you want to pronounce it Latin or in English? <laughs> but his curriculum vitae, this is his resume. This is who I am. This is why I am preaching the way I'm preaching. And it's established over and over again. And, it's, and Lisa also made a very good point. She said, think of when it's rendered. We have the three times in Acts. First is the actual event, but then the other two are in crisis points with an audience that needs to hear it again. But he's establishing it, writing to the church in Philippi while he's in jail. He's establishing it, writing to Timothy, saying, don't forget this story. You're going to be carrying this story after I'm gone. You just kind of have to think through the various places that it's, it's mentioned. There's a purpose for it. And while it becomes so very familiar to us, we tend, and I'm almost guilty of it here, glossing over it. But we cannot forget to use the word you use. It's pivotal. Yes? Well, all of them will be telling their stories their whole life. Mm -hmm. They want to convince others to come to Christ. They're always going to relate those stories to everybody they meet of any meaning for the rest of their lives. And yet we have these of just Him written. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe this is an example to us. Yeah, that's a very good point. We need to tell our stories. That's a this very good point. Thing yeah. that yep. everyone needs to know, and one person can't say it all. Yeah. 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 Just, just reiterate. He was not part of the inner circle, the original inner circle. Right? right. And a lot of these people wouldn't have known him from Adam, but they all knew about the apostles because you know that's where the. Well, he was trying to kill them all. So yeah, I mean yeah, but I mean they didn't know him as you know, but not as a believer. Though. Right. Yeah. Well, and also in telling his story. People who didn't know him prior to his conversion, I'm sure he made some statement about who he was. Yep. He wasn't humble. He was arrogant. He was, he was very educated in all right. of these things. And he turned out and down yep. when Christ showed himself to him. And now his name is totally Well, I look at this story, and you look at it starting in verse 3. I mean, he establishes himself right away. I'm a Jew. Everything else after that in this paragraph is secondary. You can understand it. I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus, but I grew up in this town. You could find people who knew me. Oh, and by the way, I was educated by the number one teacher, Gamaliel. In fact, Gamaliel is mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 30, 34 as one of the Sanhedrin. He was considered one of the greatest teachers in the Jewish tradition, especially establishing the, Pharis the Pharisees. Gamaliel's teacher was Hillel, who was legendary. Gamaliel's name shows up in the Mishnah, which is a collection of uh, teachings in the early Jewish tradition and it says here in Sota 9.15 that since Rabban Gamaliel the elder died there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time he was so revered that it was when he died they said basically the love of the law died with him wow that's interesting 
But so he mentions this name and everyone knows who he's talking about. And according to the strict manner, that word strict means a precise conformity to an authorized standard like mathematical accuracy. He, he practiced the law and I was just as zealous as any of you. I persecuted this way, verse 4, the, Christian, the Christians. And he goes on all the way down into, oh, let's see here. Uh, let's say tw- verse 12, he, Ananias, a devout man, comes and heals Paul through God's power. And the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and see the righteous one, hear the voice of his mouth. If they wanted to, they could have found any of the witnesses who were there with Paul and saw the transformation 20 years ago. They're probably still alive. You end verse 16, and now why do you wait? Ananias says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Call on his name. Chuck Swindoll makes a very interesting comment in his, uh, his book on Acts. He says, if Paul merely wanted to clear his name and vindicate his ministry among Gentiles, he would have concluded his defense here in verse 16. Think about it. He ends, if he ended at verse 16, he probably would have quieted the crowd and they would all have gone, oh, sorry, we misunderstood. But Paul does not stop. He's not a very good politician. Uh, because he has something he needs to say to these people. And look what he says. When I returned to Jerusalem, this is 20 years ago, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem because they will not accept your testimony about me. Well, isn't he kind of hinting that, hey guys, you're doing the same thing that I was warned about 20 years ago. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I, would, I, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed. I myself was standing by and approving. Verse 21, And he said to me, Go, and I will send you far away to what? To the Gentiles. Okay. So not as he's only telling them that they're making the same mistake that their compatriots did 20 years ago. He now says, and I'm supposed to bring the message to the Gentiles. They all went, oh good, we forgive you. Uh, You know, no problem. No. Up to this word, they listened to him. And then they stopped and they got angry because he brought Gentiles into the conversation, which was their whole point. They raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. In other words, kill him. They gave him one-star reviews. They went on Angie's list for his tent-making business and wrote really nasty things. His whole business collapsed overnight. They were not happy with him. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the back barracks. Let's just stop there for a second. Let's go to that picture in verse 23. They were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. When Stephen was grabbed by the crowd and pulled into the center square, what did they do with their coats? They took them off and handed them to Paul, Saul at the time, and then picked up what? Rocks and stoned Stephen to death. It says here they're throwing off their cloaks, preparing for what? They're going to stone him, but there's no rocks in the temple square. All they have is dirt. So you imagine, they're picking up dirt. They're throwing it as hard as they can, as 
there and the cloud is billowing and they are yelling and shouting kill him death to this guy destroy him he needs to be removed from the earth the picture is incredibly vivid here and the tribune the chiliarch ordered him to be brought to the barracks saying he should be examined by flogging <laughs> examined by flogging in other words beat him until he admits to something now there's been some uh, misunderstanding here there are actually two different words for the type of flogging and scourges the scourging of Jesus was with the cat of nine tails where their bone and the metal is in the whip this is not that this is just a regular whip like that's supposed to be better but um, it's still painful but it's not going to kill someone it will evoke verbal expression and I tried to imagine you know this is my brain going in so how many times do I need to be hit by a whip before I finally say what do you want me to say just give me the words just stop it that's how they solve their problems the Romans fixed things by getting people to admit to whatever so they would just they would examine them by flogging to find out what they were shouting against <coughs> goodness he's already been beaten he's sitting there bloodied he can barely stand he's disheveled and now they're going to examine him verse 25 but when they had stretched him out they have pulled the shirt off his back stretched him between two poles and they're getting ready to administer the examination yeah the whole speech that Paul gave and the reaction of the crowd, we're not even sure the tribune understood any of that. No. See? What? Well, yeah. In other words, I let you talk, and now they're angrier than ever, and now they're throwing dirt in the air, disrobing. Get this, this guy's a mess. Get rid of him. Why did I let him talk, for goodness sake? He just, he incited the crowd, and it said they were listening until he got to that last point and then they just erupted they weren't really listening they were looking to respond and there's a difference and it's, you know, and Paul says to the centurion who's standing there eh, you wonder how casually he just turns to him and go is it lawful to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uh, uncondemned. <laughs> it's like you, you got this, this centurion who's in charge of a hundred men. He's no, you know, slight. He's got to be a warrior. He knows the rules. And you go, wait, what? You're a Roman citizen? Oh my gosh. I will be killed if we even touch this man. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune, his boss, and said, what are we going to do? This man's a Roman citizen. In Roman law, a, citizen, a citizen's punishment could never be humiliating. It could be administered if they were found guilty, but never in a humiliating way like flogging. If it was a death sentence, the death sentence was administered privately and swiftly they would take him to some quiet room and get rid of him that was how they did it a Roman was considered above all the other types of justice that they, they meted out and a Roman could appeal to a higher authority all the way up to the emperor in fact Paul used this before in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 remember the jailer that whole story and they came in and they were ready to whip him and he said you can't do that to me I'm a Roman citizen they're like don't tell anybody that we were about to do this oh my goodness we'll be in trouble so here's my question did he have a identity card do you have a passport I mean how do you prove it 
He spoke in Greek, possibly, but anybody, anybody could do that. But they had to take him by his word. So I looked it up, and I was curious. How, you know, was there some sort of register? thing is, if you faked it, you were killed. So someone who says, I'm a citizen of the United States, and everyone goes, oh, okay. And if you lie, you might get fined, depending on what state you're in. You might go, well, we'll you know, come back next week and we'll figure this out. Here, nobody messed with that statement. Because if it was discovered that they were incorrect or that they were lying or faking their identity, it was an immediate execution because now they were no longer Roman. And it could be just as quickly as, oh, wow, you know, cut the guy's head off. That was that quick. So no one invoked it just to get out of trouble because it usually didn't mean they were released. It just meant they were, the punishment was suspended until they could verify. Isn't that interesting? So the tribune says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. And the tribune says, well, I bought my citizenship. Now, I love this part because I played with it a little bit. I imagine that Paul responded in Latin and said, said civis sum natu, which means... I'm a citizen by birth. Could you imagine if he did that in Latin? He's already talked to the guy in Greek. He's spoken to the people in Aramaic. And then he responds to this statement, well, I bought my citizenship. And he just turns to him in Latin and says, yeah, I was born. Anyway, it's kind of fun. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. The bottom line is, those who were about to examine him withdrew immediately. The tribune was afraid. They realized Paul was a Roman citizen. And the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused, he unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and brought Paul down and set him before them. He didn't just let it slide because Paul is the epicenter of a potential riot. And if he doesn't get to the bottom of it and these people react again, he is on the hook for the civil disobedience and civil unrest. So this is why it continues. He didn't just release Paul, because if he did, the riot would happen again tomorrow. So he's still keeping him under, uh, I wouldn't say imprisonment, but under guarded control. And do you realize that from this point forward for the rest of Paul's life, from what we can tell in Scripture, for the end of Acts, he's never free again. Now it may be that there is a point where he was released and then came back, but the story in Acts has him imprisoned the rest of this time. Oh. Alright, we've come to the end of our chapter. I do find it fascinating when we, when we look at these narratives and the stories that are here and you try to say, well, what does this have to do with me? And I think, Chuck, you picked up on it, is that when you are in a confrontation with someone who does not believe, I think it's a picture that we need to stand up for our faith no matter if we're going to get beaten, vilified, condemned, well, let's just, let's just plan on it happening. And if it doesn't, bonus. But you're, we're in a society right now, I think Franklin Graham just said it this last week, that there has never been a time when this, the scriptures and the, and, and, and the Bible is so misunderstood, misrepresented, or dismissed entirely. And we're in a society that needs to hear the Word of God.
we have an example right here. Paul was fighting his own people. But his own people were acting in a secular manner. And their attempt was to try to kill him to shut him up. And he trusted that God would provide for him in any way that he could. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together and the amazing stories that you provide for us in Acts and in other places in Scripture that are really quite extraordinary and applicable even today. Bless us as we go into our week. In Jesus' name, amen.